Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing well, Amy. It's been a busy week. It's been a busy week in the SBC. I've been in Canada all week uh, with Dr. Rayner uh, for an event up there with the Fellowship Baptist National Convention. And uh, I know you're here in Nashville for Women's Forum, so you've been traveling this week. And and the SBC, the the news around the SBC has just been hot and heavy this week. It's just a lot going on with all the state conventions. Yeah, tons. Yeah, Twitter streams were just flying, lots of stuff happening. Uh, Seemed like there was some little bit of news in every place. Yep. And we're going to start in Mississippi on a story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Dr. Floyd, uh, Dr. Ronnie Floyd, the Southern Baptist Convention president, was in Jackson, Mississippi for an event with the National Baptist Convention and President Jerry Young. And the outcome of this event is that they have agreed to appoint a joint study group and perhaps a steering committee to continue dialogue on racial healing among Christians and ultimately across the nation. Yeah, this looks uh, very interesting. This was this panel discussion that was in Jackson. Um, and, you know, the story, we'll link to the Baptist Press story that just went up this week, uh, but says that, you know, Dr. Floyd just kind of presented this idea right as they were moving into um, a question and answer time. So it was right in the middle of Q&A, and he said, you know what, maybe we should continue this. And it just sort of went from there. Uh, so I think this is, I, I think this could be a very, very good thing uh, for us to see the results of it, but also just to know that this conversation is continuing. Yes, and uh, it's, it's good to see that. We wish Dr. Floyd all the best in setting up that committee. Can't wait to see what they uh, come up with. We had a, a great report last year from the executive committee at the Southern Baptist Convention about uh, racial diversity and unity needed and uh, what's going on convention-wide. So it'll be nice to see um, what the outcome of this will be as well. Yes. All right, moving on to some state convention news. A lot of state conventions uh, reporting uh, from their annual meetings uh, this week. Minnesota, Wisconsin will start there, and they will increase their CP percentage that moves on to the SBC Executive Committee up from 17 to 20%, so a 3% increase in uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. They also elected Paul Fries as the president. Yes, that's a name we know. That is a name we know. You will hear from his son later. Uh, Micah Fries is on the, the podcast today talking about the SBC 500. That interview is coming uh, soon. But his dad was elected the president yeah. of the Minnesota-Wisconsin Baptist Convention. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So then let's move to New Mexico. One thing that's just really important to note, I know we talk a lot about numbers and you know where everything lands very specifically, but Regardless of what the numbers are, every one of these headlines are saying, you know, this state increase, this state increase. They, mm-hmm. They're all moving um, in a direction to increase their giving to uh, the cooperative program uh, in the receipts they're going to forward to the SBC. And that's correct. just a good pattern. Mm-hmm. It's a good pattern to be seen. So uh, same thing in New Mexico. They're going to uh, forward 26 percent. Mm-hmm. Up from 25 yeah, up from 25, so 1% um, increase from last year. Uh, they also elected Jonathan Richard uh, as their president, pastor of First Baptist Church in Estancia. Moving on to New England, uh, the new New England uh, executive director, Terry Dorsett, was uh, convening his first annual meeting of the state convention, or I guess it's a state's convention. 
uh, in New England, up there in the Northeast, and they have approved a budget of 2.2 million and have increased their sending on to the SBC Executive Committee by 0.4%, moving up to 15%. So a slight move. Uh, these smaller state conventions with smaller numbers, it's really tough to make those big jumps just because of the uh, the finances needed in the states. Uh, and they also elected Gary Rowe. He's a layman and was elected as the new president after serving last year as the uh, Baptist Convention of New England's vice president. So Gary Rowe, uh, layman, not a pastor has been elected as the convention's president. That's very interesting. You don't see that very often, and I love to see it. It makes yes. me want to kind of know more about him. What what does he do? What's his involvement in his church? I mean, this is just great stuff to see Southern Baptists involved at this level. You are right. All right, so uh, Utah and Idaho, they met, and they unanimously approved a church planting network. So oh, they took their cool. two states, broke them into five regions, and developed some teams uh, to do that. So that was just kind of an interesting thing that was going on. Then they also unanimously approved a one percentage point increase in cooperative program giving uh, for SBC national and international missions and ministries. And then their hope, their plan is to increase one percentage point uh, in each of the next four years budgets. So their goal is to be getting to a 30% by 2020. Moving on to Missouri, kind of starting to get to the, the southern states now. Seems like the frontier states, Newark states, the not in the typical southern area kind of happen first. And then you start, the closer you get to the south, the, the later those conventions are. So kind of moving right. back toward the south now in Missouri, uh, the executive board approved a $14.8 million budget uh, which is up. Their budget is up from 14.5 last year, and they also bumped their CP percentage up two percentage points to 42.5% on to the executive okay. committee. And Neil Franks uh, from Branson was elected as the president of the convention. So uh, a lot going Branson, on in Missouri. Branson, that's one of your favorite spots. I know, I know. Branson is one of my favorite spots. So, uh, And John Yates, the executive director, in his address also discussed the reorientation of the Missouri Baptist Convention. He had listed four points. One, a priority on developing people. Two, a strategically driven staff. Three, a kingdom orientation. And four, a commitment to accountability. So uh, with these, we've seen this a lot, Amy, in the states where whenever we start moving, shifting those percentages, uh, we saw it with Georgia, we've seen it with uh, Florida, and we've seen it with others, uh, Kentucky a few years ago, that they're, they're starting to kind of restructure the way things have been done uh, to kind of meet the changing landscape of the churches, of the convention, and, and to be able to free up those funds to, to go to the ends of the earth. Yeah, because you just have, they have to. You have to rethink yeah. everything. Yeah, and, and it's good that we're, we're not trying to, to stay with the kind of the, the plan that we've always had, the, the methods, the, the structures that we've always had, where we're adapting to the current reality, adapting to uh, the financial challenges and financial uh, changes that have happened over the past few years and adapting to that in not only the way we are funded, but the way we are uh, actually doing ministry in the state. So uh, kudos to John Yates and the Missouri Baptist Convention. All right, so moving on to uh, Florida. Of course, the big news that was coming out of Florida was the thing we all expected uh, when Tommy Green mm -hmm. stepped in. He threw out those big numbers. We're moving to 51-49, and that actually was made official. Yes, and I had, I had speculated a few weeks ago on the – on the podcast here, you know, whether or not we would see any kind of pushback or discussion about it. However, passed unanimously, people are on yeah. board with the Tommy Green uh, leadership in Florida. 
You know, and one of the things that was really good about this is how he put that information out there from the start. You know, this was part of him coming on. Everyone knew there was a lot of time to think about it. If people had questions, I'm sure they were able to ask it. They were able to talk through it together. So by the time they all got there, you know, the people in the room could say, this is the right thing to do. We're going to get on board. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Moving over to Kentucky now, and we talked about this last week on the podcast, good friend of the pod, Kevin Smith, elected president of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, the first African-American president of the KBC. Congratulations go out to Kevin. Yes, absolutely. We are very excited for him. Yes, and uh, that did you see the picture that they posted of him kind of sitting over there waiting to be called up? I think I did. I need to go it's find it It's a black it and white again. photo. I'm going to use it this week in the, pod, in the podcast uh, as the, yes, the header I image. Did see that. Just a fantastic that. picture. Yeah, Kevin is, Kevin is a great, great man, great minister, um, and just th- this is the right time for his leadership. In the KBC, he's going to do a fantastic job. Yep. Moving on to Georgia, uh, Thomas Hammond, elected president of the Georgia Baptist Convention. That name uh, should be familiar to many of you uh, if you've been following the SBC for a while. He uh, formerly at NAM, uh, has denominational ties uh, throughout uh, his career, and also a kind of a big news item. Uh, we've we've talked a lot about higher education and the SBC and Truett McConnell College has made the move to become Truett McConnell University. Yeah, and you know that we don't know a lot of details about this. Uh, there's not a ton that's been released, but they announced that uh, in uh, their report to Georgia Baptists. And so it was um, kind of, you know, I think probably a very exciting thing down there, a great thing to hear. And so it'll be interesting to see what that's going to look like. All right, Amy, we got a couple more here, uh, and they come from the the split states, if you want to call them that, Texas and Virginia, yes. where they have two state conventions. Uh, first in Texas, Nathan Leno uh, was elected as president of the SBTC, and they also passed a, a measure that 100% of any overages uh, giving to the SBTC will go on uh, to the executive committee. They're already one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, CP forwarding states, I believe. And uh, they've just said, you know, we're going to keep doing that. And anything we get over and above our CP uh, allotted budget is moving on straight to the SBC Executive Committee. Fantastic. Um, another one, as you said, in the split states, uh, the, the BGAV, that's one we, we talked about a few weeks ago, but we don't typically uh, spend a lot of time thinking about that. We A lot of churches are in the SBCV, uh, but we do have some. Uh, some still some churches that participate in the BGAV and they had kind of a big couple of days uh, that were very interesting. First of all, the presidential election, which we talked about um, a few weeks ago, it did, it it was one of the first contested presidential elections in the BGAV in a a long time. Yeah. Almost two decades. Yeah. Yeah. Nancy Stanton McDaniel, uh, she did win the presidency uh, of that. It was about a, Kind of, I can't remember the exact count. It was about 80%. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Nancy Stant McDaniel is the president of the BGAB. The interesting thing that happened, though, was in the, the resolutions committee presentation. And uh, there had been a resolution presented by Adam Blosser uh, from Drake's Branch Baptist Church. He was very public about it, had put it on his, had put it on his blog that um, was just a resolution to reaffirm the ones they had done in the past. In 1993, they had 
uh, done a resolution that spoke of homosexuality as a sin. Um, and then in 1998, they had done a resolution that affirmed marriage between one man and one woman. And so there was a lot of this question as to whether or not this resolution will come out of committee. And it did. It wasn't as long as the one that he had originally submitted that he had put on his blog, but it just was taking out a few clauses on the preamble. So they did pass a resolution without a lot of opposition that reaffirmed those 93 and 98 resolutions. Um, then after that, they, they did a resolution on religious liberty. Then there was quite a bit of debate about their resolution on um, abortion. Yeah, pro-life resolution. One, yeah, the pro-life resolution, and that did not pass. Um, so just a, a, a lot of stuff, I was just kind of tracking it on social media going on up there. And I have to say, even though we don't watch that one as much, maybe in masses, we do have some very faithful people who are trying to speak truth in, uh, in, in some tough discussions. And so I think it's just, it's, it's worth noting that that was happening. Yeah. So we'll keep tracking on everything that's going on in Virginia with the BGAV, as well as uh, the rest of the state conventions that are going on and coming up next week. Uh, so we, we still got a, a few more to go. I know yeah. Louisiana, we don't have a report from them yet. And these will probably be coming out in Baptist right. Press after we record this, of course. Uh, but Right. And um, <laughs> SBCV so, happened this week, TBC, yeah. a, lot, a lot of ones. So we'll keep covering it. Yeah, we'll just keep kind of, as soon as we get reports. Uh, on those, we will talk about them. Uh, and even some of the ones we discussed today, we don't have uh, actual links to them yet. If we if they come in, we'll put them up on the blog. If not, uh, we'll just hit them next week and, and touch on them again. So also, yes. IMB, uh, they commissioned 35 new missionaries uh, during their board of trustees meeting last week. And uh, so IMB continues to send. Uh, we didn't discuss this last week on the podcast, but uh, the the VRI, the Voluntary Retirement Incentive Deadline, was uh, around the first of the month, November the 2nd, I believe. Uh, so we still have not heard anything from the IMB on that or uh, possibly the next round of what may come uh, from the IMB as they are working on their budget. But the trustees also approved the 2016 budget. Now, we've talked a little bit about the budget in the past at the IMB, and David has made it clear uh, some of the budgeting practices that were going on, uh, and they've corrected that. Uh, if you look at this year's budget, now, you kind of look at this at first, and you go, wait a minute, this is still going on. It's still happening, but there, there should be an asterisk here. $278 million in expenses for 2016, receipts of 256. Uh, so it's a little over $22.5 million uh, in, the, in the red, so to speak. Uh, but uh, they talk about this. The projected deficit will be covered from reserves and almost entirely explained by the one-time cost associated with the previously mentioned voluntary retirement incentive. So this is basically the funds that they are using to uh, get the the organization in line, get the organization uh, under you know a financial management that will be accurate going forward. And they also talked about how they are not budgeting the stretch goal, as they call it, of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, but budgeting for the his, based on historical projection of the past four years' gifts. So the, yeah, the income that they are big, budgeting yeah. for that is going to be around that $155 million mark rather than the 175 that they've been doing before that had kind of gotten them into the situation uh, that David's having to get right. them out of. So uh, they've changed the budgeting process. 
So uh, kudos to David and them for doing that and getting that more in line with real receipts that they are expecting. They also mentioned that the voluntary retirement incentive uh, will be projected at $23.1 million in cost, but it will save them $15.5 million going forward uh, in 2016. So it's kind of one of those that kind of offsets everything, and they're going right. to decrease the global engagement expenses by $7.5 million, but the per capita spending on what they're spending per person on the field is going to increase by 10%. So because they're pulling some of these people off and rearranging things, they're getting kind of the, the a balance to their finances, uh, to their uh, expenses for personnel as well. So uh, right. kudos to the IMB, Sebastian Traeger, David Platt for all the work they've done. This is, I mean, you start talking about a 200. Yeah, this is hard work. Yeah, $275 million dollar budget. That, I don't even want to go near that. I mean, our budget at Lifeway is $500 million and it just kind of, it, it gives me headaches just thinking about all the stuff that we go through at Lifeway trying to figure out where the money's coming from, how it's going to be spent and all that. So uh, you, you get to these millions and millions of dollars of budgets and uh, it, it's just really, really difficult work. And uh, kudos to Sebastian Traeger and David Platt and his team uh, for all the work they've done uh, to try to get these uh, costs in line and get this budget uh, figured out and the finances of the IMB uh, stabilized uh, so that the future may be bright for the International Mission Board. In other entity news, uh, Guidestone, we've been tracking this story for several months, actually. The, the court case they've been involved in um, about the, uh, the mandate from the Department of Health and Human Services, it's part of the Affordable Care Act, that would require certain ministries uh, to provide drugs or devices uh, that potentially could cause abortions. And if they don't provide this, they'll face major penalties. Uh, so we've been tracking this all this time and it is now going to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. So they agreed this week that they will hear appeals by a number of ministries that includes Guidestone. Yeah. Um, also includes so, Truett McConnell, who we mentioned earlier. Yes. Yes. So we'll be, I think Wheaton's in uh, there. We'll be, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of people that's in this thing. So this is the little sisters of the poor. Yep. Little, so. little sisters of the poor. So if people are really wanting to kind of track news, the mainstream media really hit on little sisters of the poor. So if you Google that, tons of stuff yeah. will pop up about it. Yeah. Uh, so and, it, and know that it, when you hear that, think Guidestone and a bunch of the SBC things as well. Yes. All in the same, uh, all in the same case. So they'll be presenting arguments at the beginning of 2016. Uh, and then, we can see a ruling in the summer, which is when we're always kind of waiting for those to come down. We mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Micah Freeze sat down with me to discuss the SBC 500. What the, we'll talk about this in the, in the interview. The SBC 500 is the largest 500 churches in the SBC. It's of note because of the patterns we're seeing in the large churches often trickle down to the small churches. So here's our interview with Micah Freeze on the SBC 500. Joining us today is Micah Fries. Micah is the Director of Ministry Development here at Lifeway Christian Resources and has been working with me and Dr. Rayner on a project uh, called the SBC 500 in partnership with Oxano. You can hear a bit more substantive discussion about this SBC 500 on Dr. Rayner's podcast, Rayner on Leadership, that released earlier this week. 
uh, on November the 10th. But uh, you can find that episode, episode, I think it's number 173 of Rainer on Leadership. But today we're going to talk with Micah about this SBC 500 and just some of the common themes that we found in there. And Micah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Jonathan. When we look at the top 500 churches in the SBC, I think it comes as no surprise that when we, we start looking at where they're located, it's mainly Bible Belt type you know, traditional SBC territory. Yeah, it, it, particularly with the really, really yeah, large really churches. really big churches especially. The high end, right. So if you look at the top 20 churches, there's actually 21 churches in the top 20 because 20th spot is a tie between two churches. So when you look at those top 21 churches, there's really only three. There's two in California, uh, one in New Mexico. Uh, those are the only three outside of the traditional Southern Baptist footprint, though one of the churches is in Miami, which is a traditional Southern Baptist state, but not a traditional Southern yeah. Baptist city. Yeah, Miami, so, not really yeah. screaming SBC. No, not exactly. And so, But the point is is that the, the Southern Baptist footprint is still very strong. While we're growing uh, with church plants, smaller congregations, when it comes to the high end of our very largest congregations, they're still solidly in the traditional Southern Baptist yeah. footprint. And even if you expand that, you start seeing Texas... Well, is the place to be. Texas and California in particular are just megachurch yeah. central. Well, and um, most Southern of that has California, to do, anyway. yeah, most of that has to do with population That's density. Right. Demographics I mean, support. Well, I mean, you have a number of, of, of factors, I think. You've got demographics definitely support that. Population density uh, is one. Uh, then the other, you've got to have a, a population or a demographic that is conducive to Southern Baptist type environments, right? And, and what and, would that be, Mike? Well, I mean, there can be a whole <laughs> host of factors <laughs> that lends itself to that. But what I mean is, particularly when you're talking about the high end of the very largest churches, yes. all of them have been around for quite a while. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the youngest ones on the list are like 16, 17 years old. Yeah. They may and, have different uh, names than they had um, 40 or 50 years sure. ago. Sure. Yeah, Maybe, that's definitely true. it's still true. the same church. You look that's at Summit. True. Yeah. So, I mean, but when you when you look at the, the numbers, again, as I said, the particularly among the largest of the large, um, these churches have been around for a while. And so they've got an established reputation. Yes, some of them have changed their name over the years. You're right. Summit Church is an example with J.D. Greer in, in Raleigh-Durham. Village Church is an example with Matt yeah. Chandler in mm-hmm. the Dallas-Fort Worth area. These are, um, at one point in time, small, very traditional Southern Baptist churches that have yeah. changed their name and taken on greatly I think the Village um, Church different was like appearances. First Baptist uh, Highland Village or Highland Village, or Highland Village, that's right. Church I, or something that's like that. That's correct. And I think Summit was Homestead Heights or something along those lines. Anyway, but yes, uh, both older well, even, established Southern Baptist congregations. Even one of the newer ones, Woodlands Church, that was... Uh, Fellowship of the Fellowship Woodlands of the for Woodlands. a while, and then That's they expanded correct. out, so it's now just Woodlands Church. So yeah, there there are a number of these churches, and then you know you've got a church like Sagebrush Community Church in New Mexico, which was a campus of Hoffmantown Baptist Church hmm. in Albuquerque in '02, spun off as a campus, and now has grown to you know eleven thousand people uh, every weekend. Geographic, we can look at that, and we see some commonalities there. One of the the encouraging things too, though, is that the further down you get the list, the the more geographic spread that you get. Yeah. And also, even in the top 20, like we talked about earlier, with that geographic density kind of in the south, it's more diverse than we may have expected, especially 20, 30 years ago in the SBC. And I think we know some factors that can even push this you know, 20, 30 years down the road. That's right. We may see these top 20 and, and even the top 500 become even more diverse. Yeah, I think that's certain. Uh, you know, our good friend uh, Nathan Finn has talked about this. If you go back to the 1940s, 1950s, the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, was almost monolithic. I mean, you could go to any church almost anywhere. You'd get the same, you know, basic order of service, same music, same Yeah, we all looked the same, same did the same, that's sang right. the same, and preached the same. Um, and so I used to jokingly say that, you know, we've reached every middle-aged, Dockers-wearing, Phil Collins-listening-to white man in America. And, you know, that's not exactly true. But it's it's not 
that far from the truth. But when we look at what's happening uh, in more recent days among Southern Baptists, we're seeing an increasing amount of diversity. Southern Baptists are becoming increasingly less Southern and increasingly less white. Mm-hmm. And both of those things uh, tend to, I think, be positive movements for the future. Um, you know, Southern Baptists have historically been a rural denomination. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the reasons. I think that's one of the factors that we don't talk about a lot. One of the factors to um, some churches closing is just a moving demographic. As yeah. America becomes more urban and less rural, uh, we have less demographic or less density to support yeah, to support uh, those rural those churches. churches. So the denomination, though, be, with the sin North America emphasis and other things, is becoming increasingly urban, increasingly diverse, and increasingly you know less white. And uh, we see that in the list as well. You look at the top twenty churches, twenty. Uh, among the top 20 largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, 20% are predominantly African-American. And this resonates with some uh, some data that we'd seen previously. Back in 2013, um, Baptist Press had reported that from 1998 until 2013, the number of non-Anglo congregations in the SBC jumped by more than 66%. So that massive increase in a 15-year period continues to uh, continues to happen, continues yeah. to grow. And I think as we look towards the future, that's what we're going to look like. Yeah, we're going to see even more of that now with the Boulevard uh, focus that's, that's right. coming from Through NAM. North American Mission Board and Tahati and Lewis. Everything Tahati's mm-hmm. doing with NAM and everything with the Boulevard movement. So I, I think you're going to see that. And it's going to reflect itself in these numbers in the future. As we go forward in the next 10 to 15 years and we start looking at this SBC 500, we're going to see more and more because it's got a lot of things working for it. The SBC is becoming more diverse and that population base that they're reaching with these diverse churches and these non-Anglo churches are extremely dense. And that'll lend itself to large churches. Now, the, the big question is where are these churches going to be located? It may be multi-site, multi-campus type models. Right. Or we might see just a bunch of churches that are in that three to 500 range right. because of space constraints. Right. Because the more urban we get the more problem we're going to have building with problems. buildings and Which space issues. is also why we're seeing less and less... Um, massive buildings and more and more multi-site models. So churches are larger than they were 30 years ago. A lot of our large churches are larger than they were 30 years ago, but their facilities are substantively smaller. And so you're seeing more of like, for instance, a multi-site model where, you know, you've got churches that could be running 11,000, 12,000, 15,000 people with an auditorium that doesn't seat much more than 1,500 at their largest auditorium. And, uh, And so, yes, we're seeing... Greater levels of density, greater levels of diversity, just culturally across America and Southern Baptists seem to be reflecting those, albeit um, some of us would like to see that happen a little bit more quickly, but it's happening. But one example of that multi-site, multi-campus, multi-venue model, and even multi-service model would be the summit. That's a perfect example, it seems. They don't have your traditional 9,000-seat auditorium. They've got a lot of campuses, and JD has committed to planning dozens and dozens of campuses for the future and you know that's where you're seeing this large under one umbrella but the thing is those campuses may have their unique dna but they they are all the summit and and you get that summit feel at all of the different campuses yeah that's exactly right and i think that's going to be more and more popular more and more typical as we as we move along so we're seeing Broader diversity in terms of geographic diversity. We're seeing broader diversity ethnically. One of the other things that we noticed in the report, uh, Jonathan, that is not going to come to us as a surprise, but I think the degree to which it was influential might be a surprise, and that is pastoral tenure. Yeah. Um, again, looking, you know, sort of cherry, pick, cherry picking the top 20 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of total size. Pastoral tenure was shockingly important um, 
if you look at the size yeah. and, and, and uh, the sustained size of the church. So yeah, among we, the yeah, we looked at it and, and you calculated the number, the average, the average tenure. And yeah. it was even higher than I expected. I knew it was going to be high, but I didn't know it was going to be this high. Yeah, I would assume it was high too. I, I wasn't expecting this high. It was basically, it was just shy of 22 years was yeah. the average pastoral tenure. The, the lowest pastoral tenure on the list of the 21 churches in the top 20. You know, we talked about that. That's odd math. But um, the lowest was eight years. Um, yeah, but there should be an asterisk on that. Which should be an asterisk because, uh, again, that's Thomas Road Baptist Church. It's Jonathan Falwell following his dad's ministry. Yeah. There's a lot of consistency there in terms of, and he was already a part of the church. Yeah. Had a, a he, prior to that, yeah. you know, and he so, didn't come into a new congregation. No, that didn't know him, and he didn't unaware know. without a relationship. So um, there was consistency there. Apart from that one sort of outline example, the lowest number in terms of pastoral tenure for the senior pastor on the list was 13 years. Mm. The highest uh, or, or the longest tenure um, was uh, Ed Young Senior at Second Baptist Houston with 37 years as pastor, and there were three or four examples in the list of top 20 that were 30 plus years. Yeah, uh, Rick Warren and another example as far as that's concerned. So uh, I think, and, and again, because of the fact that there's no outline examples of extremely large churches with small pastoral tenure, I think that says something to us about how important pastoral tenure is to sustained growth. We have a mutual friend who just became pastor of one of these really large churches, and they're not in that top 20, but Robbie Gallaty coming into Long Hollow following David Landreth. And a lot of times, you know, we have a lot of examples of new pastors coming in to churches that are this large, this really large, and it's a lot of times difficult for them to sustain that. Now, Robbie, I have all the confidence in the world in him, and I believe Long Hollow yeah. will continue its rise and the growth that they were experiencing. But we, we've seen it a lot. But And one ex- historical example, I think you and I mentioned off the air before we started recording this, of that happening where you've got a, a long-term pastor leaving and a new one coming in and that growth just sustaining was W.A. Criswell at yeah. First Baptist Dallas. That's right, following but, the ministry of George Truett. Yeah, but those are usually outliers. They are. And and again, going back to the Robbie point, I'm pretty confident that Robbie's going to do well at Long Hollow, and that's a unique example. Yes, very um, unique. It's a really unusual example that, you know, that – um, for a host of reasons, but yes, you're right. I mean, it does seem, and, and this is a little bit anecdotal, but it does seem as we look back through history, um, that it's very difficult for a new pastor to come, come into a large, thriving, successful church and for that to continue. Now there are some examples, W. Criswell following George Truett is mm-hmm. a very good example historically, uh, but I could name more examples oh, yeah. of pastors coming in and seeing that, um, you could almost maybe name not, a few at that church. Not well, there, there have been some examples there, but I mean, not massive um, displacement of members, but a struggle at least for a little yeah. while during that pastoral transition. And uh, there have been examples where pastors have followed and there's been a struggle and then things have picked up again mm-hmm. and we're seeing more success and that's a good thing. But I think all of that says um, that pastoral tenure matters and it needs to matter to us. If we're going to make um, an impact moving forward, then we've got to see a renewed commitment among pastors to staying faithful yeah. in their and, places of service. You know, and I'll call out our generation. I mean, we live in a generation where those millennials will, you know, three or four years. Right. We we are part of the problem there. That's right. And you know, the guys our age that are pastors. Oh, I appreciate I, you lumping us in with the millennials. Well, Jonathan. I'm I'm in the millennials. <laughs> are you? You're, you're not. I'm but, not. I'm sorry. Um, you're old. But, <laughs> no, I'm not old. Uh, but I'm older, not a millennial either. You're older than me. Yeah. Um. But as we recently found out on Twitter, you are still a young Southern Baptist leader because uh, you're under the age of 40, I think. Evidently, yeah. So I think you're still under 40, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm still under 40. <laughs> Closer but, than I want to be, but, but yes, I'm Our under. generation, the, the guys you and I know mm-hmm. that are pastors, we're kind of the problem on the, the pastoral tenure, bouncing yeah. to place to place to place. At some point, we really have got to you know, sit down, settle in, 
and just invest and stay. I do think there's there's something to be said here for indigeneity. Okay, so missiology is my strength. That's, That's a big word you I know. have to spell so, it for. Um, I, I was I was thinking about this not long ago, and if you look at a lot of the successful plants that we've seen, church plants, right? One of the, the common denominators between many of these successful plants is that the planter was born and raised in the community that they planted. Yes. There's a lot of examples of that. Yes. Darren um, Patrick's book speaks to that church he, planter. And he is actually the one who, I've known Darren for years, of course, we both pastored in he's Missouri. He's got a new book out, by the way. He does have a new book. A couple people on Twitter were talking about it today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Darren is the one that actually inspired me to start looking at it, and I started looking at planters across the country and, and noticed that. Um, we've got to move away from this, this increased professionalism in the pastorate that leads pastors to sort of be hired guns who go off yeah. to school, get trained, and then go wherever the best job might mm-hmm. take them. Brothers, we are not professionals. Degree. Well, yeah, there's somebody said that once too. And, uh, B&H book. Yeah. Uh, a B&H book, a very successful one. We appreciate that. Uh, somehow we've got to be able to raise up leaders who are indigenous to context and culture, yes. who understand community, understand the spiritual needs and the, the language of the, of the community, mm-hmm. and then be able to translate that in the context of church leadership. And you and I can probably list off a half a dozen pastors just without even thinking about it. Dean and Sarah comes to mind. Dean is we a great example. Darren good Patrick. Darren. That's another one. Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler. That's Texas. Yeah. I mean, JD in, JD, the, in North Carolina. Yeah, it's not really a plant. He came in and basically but, was a revitalization. And Matt but Chandler's not a thing. plant either. And but what made them successful, I think, as a pastor they is indigeneity that to yeah. that general area. Mm-hmm. And as we look at, you know, NAM planning and stuff, you see a lot more of that. Even we mentioned him earlier, Dahadi right. Lewis. Right. And, and his connections with the Atlanta area. You see these people, the pastors that come in and don't really know the, the area, kind of drop in. And it, right. it's a struggle. And it can because, be successful. And it can okay? be. And, and here's the other thing. When we're outside of the Southern Baptist footprint, we're going to need folks to yeah. go from where their home is to yes. a place that's not their home. But I think for long ben term... Ben comes to mind on that one. Ben in Denver is a great example. But for long-term sustained success, we need to create cultures and environments where indigenous leaders are raised up to lead and direct the church for the future. Yeah, Jonathan Falwell would be another one there. Jonathan's a very good example. So, yeah. Well, Micah, I appreciate you coming on the pod to talk about this today. It's always... The pod. Uh, the pod. I like that. By the way, if you're going to make fun of me for being older than you, I'm glad for the fact that I have more hair than you. So. Hey, hey. <laughs> but you still can't grow facial hair like Well, you. no, I can't do that so either. One day one, I'm going to have puberty and be able to grow facial hair. Micah, I appreciate you coming on the pod. Congratulations to you and all your World Series uh, victory. Kansas City mess. Royals. I know that's been a MLB big, big power thing rankings. For you. Kansas City number one. Doesn't matter who else is number sec- uh, number two. Yeah. yeah so, so, did you see, by the way, who's going to be uh, playing on opening day I against did. the Royals? Yeah, I did. The Mets. That's going to be weird. They picked that two months ago. Major League Baseball decided that. So, that's yeah. going to be difficult for them. Crazy. Well, follow Micah on Twitter at Micah Freeze, uh, F R I E S, spelled like fries. That's right. But. Uh, it's pronounced freeze. Yeah. I, I think he just does that so people it's won't make fun German. of his It's German. Okay. All right. <laughs> and uh, Micah, Micah is currently talking about big churches, currently serving as the interim pastor at First Baptist Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah, a very historic Southern Baptist church. Go down Baptist there church. and you, you preach on the weekends, come back up and hang that's out with us I at do. Nashville. Yeah, and at some times you're, you're in Nashville. Um, you travel a lot. One more thing I want you to tell us about before you go, the connection that you're leading with Lifeway Research and Wheaton College. Yeah, we're very Speaking excited Speaking outside about of the this. Southern Baptist It is uh, outside context. of the typical footprint. So Wheaton College came to Ed Stetzer, who I work for, and um, have made him the uh, senior fellow of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism. And Ed has asked me to help him lead that effort. And so we're working with the Billy Graham Center, um, helping to focus and, and uh, provide some direction as we move forward into the future. Uh, you know, one of the concerns we have is that evangelism is not nearly as um, prominent 
Yeah. I think the Southern Baptist Convention would share that concern. That's right. And so we, we believe this is a great opportunity, a great platform for us to elevate evangelism nationally and even internationally and to help um, lead the conversation on evangelism. And so that's what we're, that's what we're doing at, at the Graham Center. We like to say that we are leading the conversation on evangelism, convening people, training, inspiring, encouraging, and hopefully seeing more and more men and women and uh, boys and girls coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Micah, thanks for being with us today, man. I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. All right. Thank you, Micah, for that. Um, we need to have him on more. Yes. I really enjoy uh, talking SBC stuff with Micah. So when I want to talk SBC stuff at the office, he's the guy I always go to. So, you know, because yes. he's, he's just as involved in it as we are. Uh, very well connected. Uh, his dad is a SBC state convention president, as we mentioned earlier. Yes, we've already talked about so. him once. So, well, thank you for that. Yeah, and that brings us to my favorite part of the podcast every week. This week in SBC history, Amy, blow our minds. All right, last couple of weeks, I've been kind of focusing on some really uh, major things, you know, in that affect us still today. Every now and then, I like to just find kind of random, interesting ones. So I found one that was in uh, 1949, um, November 11th, and this was actually a report that came out in Baptist Press. Uh, about a controversy I had no idea about. Um, so there was kind of Baptist this and controversies. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yes. So there had been a major issue uh, with the um, Illinois Baptist State Association that in the uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention in Oklahoma City in 1949, um, they were taking motions about. Uh, about whether or not to, I guess, it, to meet in Chicago next year, or maybe they were talking about the actual invitation. I'm not, I'm not really certain the whole motion that was on the floor. But they, there, it was alleged that people from the Illinois Baptist Association were scattered throughout the room and instructed to clap at different times so that it would have this strategy of looking like it was this very large contingency. So there was this huge political controversy. So then the Illinois Baptist State Association sent a questionnaire for, to every person in Illinois who attended the convention, and they had to answer, were you instructed to applaud during speeches favoring Chicago? Were you instructed not to sit with each other so that you'd be scattered throughout? So, and, and they sent it out to uh, 136 people. Um, all of them said, no, we weren't instructed. In well, any not, way all all, so. not all of them. Not all of them. Okay. Five, five people said they were instructed to do these things. One person said they were instructed to applaud, but they, um, or they were not, one person said they were not instructed to applaud, but they were instructed to spread out. Um, three of them, three of those people said we were instructed but we didn't actually follow the instructions. And three of them said, yes, and we did it. Um, but overall, because they, so many people said, no, we weren't instructed, it kind of went away. They said, you know, we're, we're not going to make a big deal about this. Uh, we're going we're gonna to say that it, there weren't questionable methods. I just thought the whole thing was really interesting, that there was this big sort of, uproar about 
this. Telling people to applaud when Chicago's brought, I don't even think that's a bad thing. I I don't have a problem with it. I mean, if we're trying to promote our state and we want to hold it, I mean, they didn't stack the ballots. They just kind of, you know, try to sway the room. Yeah. Did you see the name of the, did you see the name of the tactic that they called it? The old Mississippi strategy. Yes. Yes. I did see that. Looking at you, Mississippi. yeah, so I just thought it was very interesting that the whole thing is reported. It's this major um, was a strategy employed, and then they laid out what the strategy was, and I thought that doesn't even really offend me. So, so it's just interesting to see how there are just some things that can come along that are are really really big deals, and they can be really big deals for a couple of years, and then they're just gone, and we've completely forgotten about them. Yeah, until you uh, drag them out of the the grave sixty five yeah, years later. Until I do. You know, but these types of conversations, they're not new. They're, they've been around for a long time. It's like when, um, it's like when the, the, I think it was during the time of the presidential election, maybe Bush and Gore and, and one of the pundits just said, people keep talking about how Congress has never been so contentious. It's so awful. And he said, we can look back in the history books and there are things of senators punching each other on the floor. You know, human nature is, it is what it is. And it's, we've always been having discussions like this. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's clearly fascinating. And it brought up one thing that I, I would uh, like the SPC to consider is taking the convention back to Oklahoma City. That's a great town. I don't know if you've ever been to Oklahoma City. I really like Oklahoma City. And that moves us on to the resources of the week. My resource this week is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering uh, online resources. So it's that time of year. Uh, they had just announced this week that the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering resources are now available online. They've probably been mailed out. I think I even got one in the mail uh, the other day at the office. But uh, you've got all your Lottie Moon Christmas Offering resources available online. You can get that for your church. A lot of different things there to help promote that offering. Uh, always important, uh, even more so this year with the uh, changes going on at IMB and the uh, the financial reality they are facing. Very nice. I was actually going to just go back and talk about another book. And uh, it's, it's just a book that has hit sort of regular bookstores, new biography of George Herbert Walker Bush. I love uh, presidential biographies and biographies of presidential wives of first ladies. This one hit the uh, shelves this week. It is massive. It's like uh, it's 864 pages. I don't know when I'm going to get to start this thing. Uh, but I'm really excited about it. So I think I think whenever things like this come out, history is is always a great thing to um, to look at. I can't wait for the chapter about when he puked on the guy from China. Oh, I forgot about that. I, I wonder he's if that'll make. It. I wonder if that'll make it. Yeah, he's my favorite president. I love love loved him. So, and uh, that's going to do it for this week. We've got more state convention news probably next week, and who knows what else. All right. Well, see you next week.